what the scientific impulse is, is this childlike wonder about the world. You're listening to Good Is In The Details. I'm Gwendolyn Dolsky. And I'm Rudy Sallow. And this is the podcast where we learn what we didn't know we didn't know in the spirit of Socrates. In this episode, we are talking with co-host of Overthink Podcast, a great philosophy podcast for those of you who are interested in more philosophy, students, professors, layperson. And we are joined by Dr. David Kennedy-Biesman to talk about philosophy of science. So Rudy, is there something that you learned that you didn't know you didn't know in the philosophy of science episode? That's a great question. You just put me on the spot because <laughs> usually I ask you that question. Know that I didn't know. I got some confirmations about some difficult questions. Yes, yes. There is we'll something. Yes. Something. Oh, yeah. There is something. I, I didn't know that I was living with two philosophers in my house because I have a three-year-old <laughs> and a five-year-old who like to ask the question why. And during this podcast, we learn and you affirmed that philosophers are just children. Well, they retain their childlike wonderment. They're not children. I mean, like you know, we can drive. And my children that. cannot answer any questions. You know, you, <laughs> if, if they do, it's just like, a, it, it's nonsensical. So there you go. You know what, you and Steven on Twitter are giving me a hard time about being a philosopher. If I'm offending any philo- no offense. philosophers <laughs> out there, I, I apologize. I am, this is all just mm-hmm. a jest. Yeah, I know. Uh, but it is kind of fun. <laughs> Well, this episode, something that I really enjoyed about it as as I was re-listening to it and editing it is that science is put in the context of history, of politics, and even points of view about what it means to be human and what is our role in the universe. So one of the great things about this episode is that it's not just science as such, but it's, as David says, a social practice, and we are paying attention to it. So there's a lot of information in terms of the history, and then there's also brings us right up to questions about the way people are treating science and expertise today, even when it comes to the vaccine. So lots, lots to get into here. Okay, let's talk philosophy of science. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to see you both again. We got such great feedback from the one that you did with Ellie on uh, just two philosophy podcasts, just talking about whatever was going on. Right, Rudy? Rudy got a <laughs> bunch of good feedback from that. I was. It's amazing. I got so much feedback on that episode, positive feedback, David. So you okay. know, <laughs> but I was like, oh, wow. So you mean the episode where like there was a bunch of philosophers and me like sitting on the sideline and, you know, people were having these philosophical <laughs> discussions and every once in a while I might throw something out there that wasn't that helpful. That That's your favorite episode? Oh, cool. Thanks. What does that say about me? But it's a good thing I'm not a narcissist. Ultimately, Ellie was the real star in that episode. I think this topic, which it, all those lovers of that other episode listen to the whole thing, towards the end, we basically kind of teed up this episode, right? We said, oh my right, gosh, right. you being the expert on the philosophy of science, we have to have you back. It's such a timely topic. So thanks for coming back. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Let's start at the beginning. What is philosophy of science? So for anyone who's not in academia or philosophy, what would be the general idea behind it? Oh, wait, wait, wait ho- what? Hold on. Actually, can we go one step even further? further removed? Because I think this might actually be helpful. David, what is science? (laughs) (laughs) What is science? Yeah. So I think that is definitely one step um, back still from the philosophy of science. That is one of the questions that is tackled by the philosophy of science. So maybe I will enter both questions at the same time, because of course, science is a social practice where people come together to investigate the nature of reality, the structure of the world that we inhabit. And there is a lot of disagreement about at which point in history science proper begins. Some people trace the origins of science all the way back to the Mesopotamian period. Other people trace it back to the classical Greeks with Aristotle, the first systematizer of nature. Other people trace it to the 17th century with the rise of modern physics. So think about your Galileo, your Copernicus, your Kepler, your Newton, and so on and so forth. But in general, independently of what historical 
point of origin you start from, it seems as if what defines science is its mode of explanation and its search for explanation. So what science looks for is not simply an account of how things are, a description of what happens in the world, but in fact, it searches for an explanation. It tackles those why questions. For example, astronomy, the movement of celestial bodies, which has been a concern of civilizations for a very long time, one way of distinguishing a scientific from a non-scientific approach to the question would be to say, you could try to describe what happens. The sun goes up, the sun goes down, the moon follows certain patterns, the stars follow certain patterns. But when you then ask the question of why those celestial objects follow those particular patterns, whether you can account for them using a model or a framework, and whether you can predict their behavior, that's when you enter into the domain of science proper. So one way to think about science is as the field of human action that seeks to answer why questions about the natural world. And again, that is one of the ways in which philosophers of science sometimes enter into that field is by precisely asking that question. So it's a field started by a bunch of two and three-year-olds because Gwen, you will soon know this. <laughs> Every other question is why. Like, oh, like yeah, seriously, like, yeah. it's well, totally, seriously. And there's even like little books about books of why. No, I mean, I'm, I'm just kidding. I, <laughs> I was joking about the two and three-year-olds. It's just, it's funny because my daughter and son, I mean, they ask a lot of why questions and I am a scientific idiot and can never answer it. <laughs> so I just want to point that out that I'm here to learn today. Rudy, that's philosophy has been described as a childlike wonderment. So mm-hmm. you're, you're, I mean, the fact that you came up with that is that it's very telling. I think that that's the strength of philosophy is that somewhere along the lines, we stop asking the why or we stop being curious, but philosophers are people who have never, ever let go of that curiosity. I've been saying this ever since you had me on this podcast. Philosophers are a bunch of children. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you guys can never answer questions. You can never, you know, grasp just reality. asking no, more just, questions. Yeah, no, it's a talent, really. And we spend a lot of time cultivating it. <laughs> ah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> no, but I think something similar can be said of scientists as well, that what the scientific impulse is is this childlike wonder about the world. And I do think children are natural scientists who look at the world with a sense of interest and curiosity that sometimes we lose as we get broken into civilization, into culture, into adulthood. And the task of science, much like the task of philosophy, I think is to refine or to rediscover that sense of wonder that is very easy to lose and very difficult to regain. When you're saying that science is asking for the why, I had always thought that science was asking for the how, and then the philosophers were asking the why. So for example, when you said the movement of celestial bodies, that science could give an account of the how, but why it's doing anything, that seems to me a philosophical question. Yes. So like how gravity works, but why is there a world? Why is there gravity? Why is there any of that? So that uh, it's a description of the how. Yeah. So I think that's a good way to think about it because it's one place where we see the connection between science and philosophy, which of course, historically were not separated until very recently. So the distinction is a novel invention of the late 19th century. And we can talk about that. So let's take again with the example of astronomy, just because it is a field of investigation that has received special attention throughout history for good reasons, because people want to make sense of the universe that they inhabit. It's a cosmological question. Now, you can ask a how question, how do the celestial bodies move? And that's purely descriptive. And that is one thing that science does. It describes things by observing them. But it's not enough to simply describe what is happening if you cannot give an account of why it is happening in that way. So one way of defining science is in terms of a search for the laws that explain the observations. So what are the underlying mechanisms that are driving that which we see? So we might say, how does the sun move? Well, in this particular direction. But why? That requires the creation of a framework that places the Earth in a certain relationship to the Sun, in a certain relationship to the other planets. But you are right, uh, Gwen, that there might be a difference between the why questions that scientists ask and then maybe the more generic 
or abstract why questions that sometimes philosophers in particular are drawn to. And one way in which philosophers make that distinction is in terms of the difference between proximate and ultimate questions. So proximate questions are about mechanisms, they are about causes, they are about lawful patterns, whereas ultimate questions are those grandiose existential questions that maybe take us more in the direction of what is traditionally associated with philosophy and metaphysics. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there consciousness in a world of matter? Why do we keep on living if we have no guarantee that there is meaning in the world? That sort of thing. The kind of stuff that'll drive you to drink. <laughs> Why do we Hopefully exist? Not well, not we're going to die. That sounds, that sounds accurate. <laughs> what is some scientific discovery or understanding that really, just historically, that really rocked the way that we understand ourselves, that really changed things or that was a challenge, that was a different way of just, yeah, viewing our own existence? So any major scientific discovery has the power to alter the way in which humans think about their place in the universe, right? So you have some discoveries that are more um, that are more technical and that might change the way in which scientists think about the phenomena they study, but then there are those that bleed outside of science and sort of have these gigantic cultural effects. So some of the classic examples that come to mind include, of course, the shift from heliocentrism, the heliocentrism of the ancients, the notion that the sun is at the center of the universe and that the earth revolves around that, to geocentrism with Copernicus in the 16th and 17th centuries. And once you switch the roles of the sun and the earth, you don't simply make an adjustment to an astronomical model. You do change a fundamental aspect of how people up until that time have thought about themselves, of humans as occupying the center of the universe because they are made in God's image. And it is only sensible that the image of God would be, in fact, the ground zero of all existence. So I think the shift to geocentrism, we are now children of the scientific revolution, so we don't think about the effect that it had at the time, but it created a genuine cultural and psychological crisis at the time, because mm. it suddenly meant that we are a planet just like other planets, and there is nothing special about humanity. So it decentered the human in a fundamental way. And this is why on the episode with Tracy Drain, and I'm saying this with as straight a face as I possibly can do, I touched upon this fact of if there actually were aliens in the universe, I do feel that there will be a certain religious component won't accept it or would have a really hard time accepting it. And I've actually talked to some friends that are very religious. I've actually asked them the question, do you believe in aliens? And does that conflict with us being made in the image of God? And um, some have said yes. And some have said, well, no, just because we were made in the image of God doesn't mean that aliens weren't either. And, you know, they've, they've kind of gotten back there. But in all seriousness, I really do think that if, if it was actually proven that there were these other beings, I think it could have a huge impact on our humanity. I don't know, David, is that nuts? Or what do you, what do you think about that? Well, this was a debate in the 17th century, this issue of other possible worlds with other or other possible Earths with other possible humanities. So it was not a debate that happened in terms of aliens, but in terms of other planets populated by other people just like us. Because in the 1700s, when the concept of the infinity of the universe is introduced in the wake of the Renaissance, the notion of infinity raises a lot of theological questions. For example, it raises the question about whether the universe has any limits. And if not, it means that it goes on forever. And once you posit infinity, then statistically, it's very likely that there must be some other worlds out there that hold life. And in the 17th century, the debate about this was scientific as much as it was theological. Some of the specific concerns that people had about this sound somewhat comical, but they come out of a deep commitment to the worldview of Christianity. So for example, people really worried if there are other worlds with other people out there, have they received 
the word of God? In other words, do they have the Bible? Because if they do, then the Bible that we have that tells us that we're the only ones in the universe is a lie. But if they don't have a Bible, then it means that God created other beings with a soul, but without giving them the mechanism for saving themselves, which of course is the Bible. So, you know, a lot of very technical concerns um, at the intersection of science and theology, but you're right that the more general point that we're getting at here is that anytime you tweak the image that people have of the place that they occupy in the cosmos, it has these trickle-down cultural and psychological effects that are very deep depending on one's philosophical, religious, existential commitments. And again, we forget about that because most of us are, most of us have grown up in a scientific culture, but for people who didn't or who lived through that transition, it was a very real shock. Let's see, outside of astronomy, I'm interested also in, well, from what I understand with Descartes is that when he started asking these questions about the body and how it functions, that it was considered sacrilegious, that that is for God. And of course, now with medicine, that seems so silly. Asking questions about the human body is not a sacrilegious thing at all. But if we were to update it, it seems like that's where we are when it comes to things like genetic engineering, or that there are children who will be born not as the result of their parents having sex, that there's other ways for pregnancy to happen. And there is this resistance because it's this idea that that is God's job. That's not for humans. Could you speak to that at all, that tension? Yeah, you know, because your comment about Descartes, for example, and the concern about thinking about the internal mechanics of the body is a very good example of a cultural slash religious taboo that dates all the way back to the Greeks. So one of the reasons why forensic science, for example, was very late in developing is precisely because there has been for a very long time a prohibition on opening up bodies, including corpses. So you couldn't really do autopsies to look at what was happening inside the body of the people who died as a way of trying to figure out what caused their death. This is why, for instance, if we look at the writings of somebody like Galen, Galenic medicine in the Roman period, most of his descriptions of anatomy are actually made on the basis of studies of animal bodies like oxen. So he would open up oxen, he would open up their heads and their bodies, and then he would make projections about human anatomy. Then there is a moment uh, during the Alexandrian period when those rules change a little bit and people start being given permission, special permission to open up bodies. And that's when you see suddenly a surge of new knowledge about the internal organization of the body, the structure of the brain, uh, the structure of the nervous system, the organization of the arteries, so on and so forth. And even though by now we have quote unquote, overcome that taboo, that prohibition. It seems as if the prohibition has shifted into other places. And one of them is, as you mentioned, when into the domain of genetics, the Rosetta Stone of human biology by modern scientific standards. And we are familiar with that argument, right? We're familiar with the argument about not playing God, about scientists not meddling with those divine processes that continue to exhibit themselves through the human body, like procreation. It's difficult to give an argument against that prohibition that makes sense to the people who believe in it. Because the defense of that kind of research, of genetic research, of assisted uh, reproduction, is almost always from the very beginning going to begin from outside of a religious framework. But I think it can be useful to give a defense of science, of new scientific practices from within the religious framework that the critics occupy. You know, for example, people who don't believe in medicine, you know, who believe the body should just, it's God's will, whatever happens, we don't vaccinate our children, we don't take them to the hospital. There is research that suggests that in, in some cases, they're more likely to change their views if you give a religious defense of medicine, right? God put these clues in the world, these treatments, these medicines, these plants for us to discover and gave us the light of reason in order to connect A and B. 
and create the treatments that will make our life better. So, so there is a religious defense, for example, for science in that way. And I sometimes wish that I saw a little bit more of that because I think the people who express those concerns, they're coming at it from a very specific perspective that is not likely to necessarily listen to, to the claims of a secularist. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember seeing on the cover of one of the magazines, like Newsweek or Time, where it said something like creationism or science, or I don't remember. It was just a false dichotomy. And for me, that is really frustrating. Now, of course, there are people who are going to argue for science and that they are atheist. And then there are people who are religious who are going to deny science. But there is, it's not necessary. And I have wondered the same thing of, why not make that argument that reason is part of the creation, is part of the genius of the design by the divine, and that there is nothing incongruent with saying that reason is what allows for us, like you said, connect A and B. I think even with something like evolutionary theory, like it does not necessarily need to remove God. You could say that that is part of the design. Yeah, and in the 19th century, during Darwin's time, a lot of the debates in natural science happened precisely at this junction of how do we reconcile reason in a, let's say, secular sense, our capacity to think scientifically about the world, with the basic premises of religion, the notion of creation, the notion of miracles. How do we reconcile those things? And although I do think it is important for strategic, for strategic almost PR reasons to engage in that discourse and to try to find some kind of compromise for people who need that compromise in their lives, who don't want to give up either A or B. Although I think that's important, I think it's equally important to recognize that there are real tensions that are irresolvable, right? So as, as soon as we speak about creation, that does stand in contradiction to what we know from, let's say, evolutionary biology about the origins of humanity, that we can talk about the origins of species, but that origin will never be transcendental. It will never be divine. And so there are definitely limits to that dialogue. But the question then is how to navigate those limits and what kind of attitude of tolerance do we adopt in relation to people who fall on one side or the other of any one of those limits? I read, who was the famous atheist, the British guy who just died not too long ago, maybe about like three years ago? I cannot believe I'm totally blinking. Dawkins? I wonder if it's Dawkins. I don't I, I don't know if he is. Guess who doesn't know the answer to that question? Gonna, <laughs> it's gonna drive me crazy. It's, not, it's me. I do not know the answer to that. Um, but one of the one of the things that he wrote in his book was that I'm thinking about this because you just said miracles, is that there will be no more miracles. That the concept of miracle is because we did not have as much of a scientific understanding. That now, or there he also said there won't be any more saints. And that is because you know, one of the conditions to become a saint is this idea that you um, have to have performed some sort of a miracle. And he just said, that is just not part of the equation anymore. What do you think about that? Yeah. So um, for starters, let me say that it's not Richard Dawkins. I just checked it out. He's still alive. <laughs> Our apologies. <laughs> <Okay>. for, <laughs> you guys are um, killing people on the show. Uh, <laughs> who, um, who is it? It's going to drive me crazy. I have I have the book uh, downstairs. His book, it's something like God is not great. Christopher Hitchens. Life. Yes, Christopher yes. Hitchens. There we go. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so think about the concept of miracle, which by definition, if you approach it from a theological perspective, means an intervention into the world of creation by the uncreated. So God reaches into the realm of human history and makes a tweak that violates the natural order of human events, right? So either bringing somebody back to life or restoring sight to somebody or doing something that by the laws of nature and human society would be inconceivable. That requires that you believe the claim that there is a distinction between the created realm and the uncreated realm, right? That there is a finite world and an infinite world that is inhabited by God and that somehow there is some traffic between those two realms. That occasionally God steps into the order of time and intervenes. It's very hard to give a scientific version 
of miracles or anything analogous to it. We can talk in science about anomalies. Uh, we can talk about rare events. We can talk about statistical flukes. But the nature of those things will never rise to the level of a religious miracle, of a true, true miracle. And so I think that's right, that from a scientific perspective, you need to be able to give an account of the world without appealing to what philosophers of science call skyhooks. So these kind of chains that you throw up into some transcendental realm as a way of securing your claims. There is nothing outside of this world that you could reach up for that might give you a way out. And I think miracles by definition are that. So it seems to me correct that there can be no miracles and there can be no saints mm. any longer. You know, he was on, whenever somebody is up for becoming a saint and there's a discussion, there has to be some designated dissenter and he was the one from Mother Teresa. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> he was the dissenter to try to explain why she shouldn't be a saint. That would be the worst. I, I cannot imagine being tapped for the person who's saying, no, this person should not be a saint. Rudy's just shaking his head. I mean, that's, no, you know, I mean. I, I'm, I'm I didn't like, even know that was a thing. I didn't even know. I was, I was always that thinking it was a pro argument. I didn't know that there was somebody who had to step in and be like, by the way, no. I clearly didn't know that there had to have been a no, but tip tip your hat to this individual for, for like really sticking to his guns and, Absolutely. and speaking against Mother Teresa becoming a saint. I mean, that is a that is a real a true atheist. believer. That's a committed person. You, you, we need those people in this world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's somebody who's committed to the process, right? It's like, we need to go through the right procedure and somebody has to do it. Although I have to say there are are some pretty good critiques of Mother Teresa out there. Oh, I'm <laughs> and, sure there and, are. No, I've, and her politics. I am not an expert on Mother Teresa or anything that she's done or, or anything. I'm just saying this yeah, man yeah, is yeah. a committed person. Yeah. And <laughs> with this particular case, we also need to ask the question of how committed we must be to the metaphysical and theological components of a particular practice in order to still defend it. So with the beatification of saints, you know, somebody could say there's still value in the church elevating certain individuals to the status of saints and making them hagiographic objects, even if we don't necessarily believe that there was a miracle by the traditional definition, right? So I think you could have a much more nuanced, maybe subdued defense of some of these religious practices based on what they do for people and their faith and their belief in a higher power. Mm -hmm. And I'm much more likely to listen and accept those more subdued versions than maybe if somebody were to expect me to truly believe that Mother Teresa caused an actual miracle because she was touched by, by God in some way. Can we talk about today some contemporary issues with the tension between science and the layperson? I am seeing this idea being thrown around a lot in media or people are saying you don't believe in science or I believe in science or you don't believe in science. What are we talking about? What is going on here with this tension between science and the layperson? And there almost seems to be this resentment towards science. Is it justified or what do you see is happening? Yeah, so this is a very difficult subject, in part because it has a complicated history, the question of mistrust in science, and in part because it's taken a brand new form very recently, in my view. I think the mistrust in science that used to be maybe much more tied to problematic scientific histories now has become almost universalized and politicized in a particular way. So when you think, for example, about people who believe in conspiracy theories, people who spread misinformation, they expressed almost a generalized skepticism about the value and the power of science that seems pretty ill-informed. But at the same time, I do believe that there are ways in which science has been responsible for the breakdown in trust. Of course, not only science, there are larger issues at play here. There are very powerful vested interests. There is the rise of digital technology and all the problems that it raises. There is the fact that we live in a globalized world where information flows at faster speeds than ever before. And all of that complicates the issue. But 
as a philosopher of science, when I look at the contemporary moment, you know, where there is this tension between the lay public and scientific expertise, my instinct is to do two things at the same time. On the one hand, I want to come to the defense of science. And the philosophy of science is very helpful for that. Why? Because when you start studying science from a philosophical perspective, you start asking questions about what is scientific knowledge? You know, how does it differ from other forms of knowledge that maybe are not scientific, like common sense or like intuition? And once you have a more sophisticated understanding of what a scientific theory is, of what a scientific concept is, of what scientific evidence is, then you're able to look at things like conspiracy theories or misinformation campaigns and spot more easily what is wrong with them from an epistemological perspective. And so that's one value, I think, of the philosophy of science, that it, it gives us tools for being critical of misinformation and conspiracy theories, which I think make several mistakes right? So for example, they typically have a very poor conception of evidence. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who believe in conspiracy theories will defend their worldview on the basis of evidence that just does not stand up to evidentiary standards in science. Like I, I watched a, a YouTube video, or <laughs> I saw a meme, or I read something in a problematic website. And so having a deeper sense of the quality and the standards that must be met in science in order for something to be accepted as knowledge, I think gives us a way of judging when something doesn't rise to that level, but nonetheless pretends to. So the difference between science and pseudoscience. And so in that sense, I want to come to the defense of science and say that if you have your finger on the pulse of scientific knowledge, you have a higher degree of cultural literacy for understanding these events happening outside of science, right? People making truth claims that maybe to a lay person or to the untrained ear could sound scientific, but in reality, don't even come close. At the same time, I do believe that one of the functions of philosophy is to be critical of science, to be critical of scientific practices, especially those that are deeply entrenched and could be otherwise. And one of the problems that has happened is that because science, and this is, this is a very long history that takes us back, not just to the 19th century, but way further back, we know that there is a long history of scientific racism mm -hmm. and scientific sexism, of scientific theories uh, and scientific communities fetishizing particular people and groups of people, sometimes treating communities like the African-American community as objects to be prodded and studied. And that has created a deep mistrust of the scientific establishment in those communities. And that mistrust is not ungrounded. It is grounded in historical fact. And so, for example, when people today talk about the fact that skepticism about the COVID vaccine might be higher in certain communities of color, it's very difficult to separate that from these larger histories of oppression that have been created by science itself. Like the Tuskegee experiment, which is not that far back in history. That's... Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Tuskegee experiment ended in 1972, 1973. I forget the exact year, but it started in the 1930s. And for 40 years, poor African-Americans from the American South, you know, were they were allowed to have syphilis develop without being given the treatment, even when the treatment was already available, because scientists wanted to know what would happen, you so, know, with the life of the disease. Awful. We talk about that in one of my ethics classes, and so many students are not aware of it. I'll, I'll ask mm -hmm. people if they've heard of the Tuskegee experiment. And the only, generally speaking, it'll be one or two people who raise their hand, and they're almost always African-American. Yeah. But that's just something that's not talked about. Of, and I think that because we don't even know that that part of history, then it seems to be unexplainable why you have, like, why is it that this uh, group is resisting something like a, a government vaccine? Right, right. It's, it's really important to keep in mind that there's a whole history that is informing the present and that it's not just in the past, right? Like you say, it's not from another century, really. I mean, technically now it is 21st, 20th century, but we're talking about 40 years. Um, yeah. That's less than a lifetime. And 
it's not as if that were the only one. And it's not as if they all ended in the 1970s. Even today, there continue to be examples of scientific researchers treating communities of color, again, as objects to be studied rather than as subjects to interact with meaningfully. One area where we see this today, to go back, uh, Gwen, to your example of genetics, is in genetic research about ancestry. There is a lot of controversy about the ways in which indigenous DNA is being treated today by researchers interested in the genetic origins of humanity and so on and so forth, and instrumentalizing indigenous communities as a way of just getting access to their DNA. So it's it's an ongoing problem that, again, fosters uh, what I will call a focalized or or a focused skepticism about science, which again differs from the more generalized skepticism that we sometimes see among people who are members of these conspiracy communities. But in both cases, you have fear. You have fears about science. You have questions about science. It's just that in one case, it comes from a real history. And in the other one, it seems to come from a politicization that is quite problematic. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking, I mean, I'm very much pro-science, excited about science, but I think it would be disingenuous to not recognize that still the scientists have a point of view of the world. I mean, I'm just thinking about um, an article, The Philosophical Origins of Patriarchy by Dr. Mercer. And Rudy and I actually had a chance to talk to her on a previous episode. But something of just the biological fact for instance, of women having menstrual cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, The science of the ancient Greeks cast that as if that were some sort of a deficit in the humanity. So just, and that is taking a biological scientific fact, but making it sound like it is problematic. And um, so that's where the, the history is that I think what we can learn from that is just be more aware of when we are looking at some sort of a fact, some sort of evidence, are we projecting an idea of the world to make that fit into an idea of the world? Yeah, and I think you're getting to the distinction between scientific facts and scientific interpretations. And once again, this is where I think philosophers can put on their hats as philosophers and intervene and say, you know what, you might be right about the facts, but your interpretation seems to either violate the facts or doesn't capture all of the facts or seems to be molded and shaped by extra scientific values, maybe without your realizing it, right? Because scientists, just like all of us, are people who have their personal histories, their unconscious biases, uh, their prejudices, certain norms that they follow knowingly or unknowingly. And there is no way that that doesn't reflect in their work, in the experiments they pursue, in the questions they ask, in the ways in which they interpret their findings, in the ways in which they deal with criticisms. And let's also say that as humans with interests, sometimes scientists act in ways that violate the spirit of science because they are motivated by other things. I'm I'm here thinking about um, not to put somebody in the line of fire, but maybe a little bit. You know, the French doctor from Marseille who became the darling of the Republican Party, Didier uh, Raoult, uh, for know. saying uh, he's a French, he's the French doctor who came up with this claim that hydroxychlorine and yeah. um, acetros, uh, oh my God, what is the term? Acetromycine together are a cure for COVID. And he made the claim on the basis of really shady research or truly poor data that now has been picked apart by the scientific community. But nonetheless, it seems to be a clear case of somebody wanting to profit off of the fact that we are in a pandemic context. People are in a state of alarm. People wanted a solution to this virus. And he could claim the spotlight by you know, claiming to have research that magically nobody could replicate. Um, you know, so, and, and- but can I ask you then, why is it that when that was happening, 
all of a sudden people wanted to jump on taking that. And now we have an actual vaccine and there's a hesitancy to it. So what happened? Well, that's a good question. So thank you. you know, crazy, I, mean, that, that is, I mean, it's a great question. Yes. And it's just mind boggling. So if David has an answer, I'm like riveted. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that I have an answer, but he's so, a philosopher, Rudy. <laughs> you I test there? If I, see that. I tested him right there and that was good. He is a true philosopher. He's committed, he's as committed as that good. But I love that. No, so this is what's going to happen. You ask a philosopher the question and he's going to be like, well, I don't like, well, think I that don't I have, really an answer. have an answer. That was good, David. <laughs> Nice. But I will uh, explain for 10 minutes why I don't have an answer and that it's a good question. <laughs> no, right? Did I, I just predict what's going to happen, David? Maybe so. And I don't <laughs> want to say yes, because then I'll give away the secret <laughs> of our trade. Uh, you know, we're like magicians. We, we have an oath of secrecy where we don't <laughs> tell. <laughs> I like that. I like magicians. I like magic, you know. Some people will say uh, science is magic. No, yeah. just kidding. No, go well, ahead, David. I'm sorry. Philosophy is nothing but tricks. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you think about that question of why people ran to this false cure and then later not to the vaccine, it seems to me that there are two things. The first one is that when Didier Raoult came up with his study and it got published, it gave a sense of scientific legitimacy to his claim because his trial study, his pilot study was published in a scientific journal. Now you might wonder, well, if it got published in a scientific journal, then it must be pretty decent because it means that it went through scientific review. This is where, again, as a philosopher, I want to be very critical of scientific practices as they occur, because one of the things that happens in pandemic contexts is that journals feel a tremendous pressure to be the first ones to get there, right? The first ones to publish the cure or the latest knowledge about something. And what happened in this particular case, and in several other cases since, we now know that this is a pattern during emergency situations, that the standards, the normal standards of scientific review are almost put on pause and scientists start pushing out publications without proper review, really. And you end up with bad science that gets stamped as good science because of the politics of the scientific community, the politics of reputation, the politics of being the first, and so on and so forth. Another issue that happens is that a lot of scientists ride on the coattails of their own fame and reputation. In today's world, that reputation typically is measured purely quantitatively. How many articles have you published? Just numbers, quantity. Quantity is master. Just to stay with this example of this French doctor, he has been sort of a master at tricking the algorithms by just putting his name on as many articles as possible, right? So typically, if you're a scientist, you might publish like, I don't know, between five and 15 articles a year. He publishes over 100 a year. Now, no human can actually do that, you know, pop out two full articles per week. That's inconceivable. It's just something that he does where he puts his name on any publication coming out of his institute, whether he did anything for it mm. or not. And so that practice in science of measuring reputations based on your publication metrics gives a platform to the person holding the biggest stick. And so, you know, questions of quality can get muddled in this world of quantity. And we saw that in this case. So you have somebody who is doing poor research, who does not want to hear any criticisms of his data and of his findings, and who has a very public platform because of his metrics. In that particular case, I think this is what was happening, why so many people rushed to this combination of hydroxy, um, oh my God, I always forget the name. I have to think about it and visualize it. Hydroxychloroquine, yeah, I think. Yes, thank you. Erythromycin or something like that? Uh, yeah, acetromycin. And so that's one thing that happened that made a lot of people rush to it. It got politicized because it meant that the Trump administration could say, we are going to fix this problem and take responsibility for having ended the COVID pandemic, which would have scored a lot of points, political points. So that's why there was no Republican objection to that treatment because it was politically useful. By the time you get the vaccine, of course, Trump is already on his way out. So the Republicans no longer have an incentive. You know, I'll, I'll just say the Republicans, but it's a larger conversation than that. So the political context has shifted and suddenly there is a politicized objection to the vaccine, even though for that we know that 
there is plenty of evidence for its efficacy. The other reason I think why people rushed to the first treatment but not to the vaccines just has to do with the nature of vaccines. Vaccines are somewhat paradoxical by their very essence because they inject you with a virus as a way of protecting you against the virus. A lot of people don't understand how that works. And in fact, they think it's evidence that they are a government conspiracy because if, they, if, if the government really wanted to protect you from something, they wouldn't give it to you. But that again is rooted on a very simple misunderstanding of the science of vaccines which has to do with triggering a response of your immune system to protect you against a more serious attack from the virus, right? So what the vaccine mm -hmm. does, it spooks your immune system so that the guards go up so that it's really ready to fight when a real intruder comes in. But it really violates people's expectations of what medicine means and what cure means because it, it's paradoxical in the sense that it fights fire with fire. So I think vaccines, by their very nature, raise a lot of questions, which is why then people step away from them and express resentment, fear, confusion about why they're being asked to take on a treatment that, for starters, seems to be the disease rather than the cure, secondarily is primarily for other people, not for themselves. That's so interesting. Now I'm, I'm seeing it, yeah, the hydroxychloroquine as opposed to taking some sort of a pill as opposed mm -hmm. to a vaccine, that that was part of it. And then the politics of it, which I think is, I don't know, yeah, the politics and science and medicine, it's all just so, um, it's, it's kind of fascinating, but it's frustrating at the same time. Yeah, it's frustrating because, you know, one of the things about viruses is that they are not just a health issue, they are a public health issue. Yeah. And they really highlight the extent to which we are deeply interconnected to one another as social beings and the extent to which our well-being is dependent on other people. And in a country like the U.S. where we live and die by individualism, by a radical individualism where it's just me looking after my own interests and doing what is best for me, something that requires a shift of, of perspective from the individual to the social or to the communal just doesn't register for a lot of people. Uh, I think that's the same issue with climate change. It is at odds with the idea of every man for himself, individualism, personal freedom, and that's why it's just not translating. Yeah, and it's a classic example of what is called a problem of collective action, which is that it's something that we can fix if we act collectively, but because we don't have the guarantee that everybody will act collectively, you know, let's say recycling or reducing their consumption, then people don't want to do their part because they feel as if they've been cheated by following a rule that other people break, right? This is the tragedy of the commons, that we're afraid that other people will cheat, so we cheat first. And it just becomes a race to the bottom. Is the hardest question in the world to answer, just kind of wrapping this all up. I mean, and I actually think you can actually answer this with one word. I actually have a question that a philosopher can answer. Could the possibly hardest question ever in human existence be the following? Why did the Big Bang happen? Yes, I think for physicists, that would be the biggest question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And that is where I feel like the only way you can answer that question is if you're spiritual or philosophical or something. You've got you to come up with something in order to try to even answer that. You have to believe that the Big Bang happened and you know that that's where the universe started and everything. you got to kind of start with there. But I've always just, as we were going through this, and I've always wondered the answer to that question and it always hangs over my head. And that's where coming into this episode... You know, I thought about the philosophy of science as well. So I, I, just wanted, I just wanted to ask, hey, do you think that that's probably one of the most difficult questions to answer? Yeah, I would say that that's true. And you're right that in order to even broach that question, you need something like a, like a speculative impulse. You know, maybe we can call it theological, we can call it cosmological, spiritual. I like speculative in this context because it means you have to speculate about something that maybe you will never fully have a satisfying answer to. What makes that so interesting but so frustrating is that those grandiose why questions, right, what I earlier described as ultimate questions as opposed to proximate questions that can be answered more systematically, is that they throw back in your face the limits of your own human understanding. I think that's something that we 
sometimes forget when thinking about science, we tend to fall into this hubristic attitude that we haven't figured out everything yet, but we will. As if the world exists in such a way that it can be captured in its totality by the categories of the human mind. But the world was not made for human intellectual consumption. So there will be things about the world that will simply elude our grasp because we're just one species of animals among many others. I like sitting with that discomfort. And I sometimes call upon philosophers and philosophers of science and scientists to sit with it as well. The fact that there are things that we cannot know because of our limited humanity. Rudy, you're just one species amongst other species. <laughs> you're just... Am I? Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I'm sorry. I'm starting to hang out. I'm pretty sure that's how we are just... <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm hanging you're out just with one species. I like, I like you people. You don't, <laughs> don't answer questions. I don't know. I don't, how do I know? I could just go about my merry day. No, I, I, I love this stuff, man. I geek out on this stuff. and Yeah, it's um, fun. <laughs> no, yeah, really. I think this is this stuff is huge. It's so relevant for today. It's so politicized that it drives me crazy. And especially living with a scientist, right? My wife being a doctor and she always brings this, you know, the science word up and it's just it's just interesting. It affects my life on a daily basis. So thank you for, you know, humoring me during this episode, David. I love doing that at all. Uh, this is a great conversation. Well, David, last time we had you on, you said that you had a book coming out. Is that, what's the status of that? So the book will be coming out in March or April uh-huh. of this coming year. And it is a book in the philosophy of science focusing specifically on animal consciousness. And so one of the things that I do there is what I said earlier, I think philosophers should try to do, which is pick fights with scientists about the interpretation of their own findings. What I do is I look at a lot of research in contemporary animal neuroscience, animal behavioral science, then I interpret those findings from a philosophical perspective in terms of what they tell us about the consciousness of other species. And sometimes I find myself disagreeing with scientists about the meaning of their own experiments, which is an interesting place to be in when you are not a scientist, but you do think that the data that you're finding actually bears out a different reading. Do you have a title for the book yet? Uh, Yeah, the title of the book is When Animals Dream, The Hidden Side of Animal Consciousness. That is a great title. It is. It is a great, great (laughs) When Animals Dream. I I, love it. It's very good. Oh my God. All right. So David, does that mean we can have you on again when your book comes out and then we're going to talk about animals? I would like like you to say yes, please. Oh yeah. Okay. I'd love to. I'd love to. Okay. And I will link Overthink into into the show notes and Thank you so much, David. This was great. I love oh, this. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm happy that we got to talk about religion and science and politics. Because sometimes the philosophy of science can stay a little bit siloed just in science. And I think this discussion highlights what I think the philosophy of science should be, which is also panning out into these larger topics. David, have a good day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. And good news, we have some merch. You can always get in touch at goodisinthedetailspod at gmail.com if you're interested, or if you have any questions about the show, or if you would like to advertise with us or sponsor a show. We're also on Patreon at patreon.com slash goodisinthedetails. I will put that in the show notes. And we're on Instagram, goodisinthedetailspod. Okay, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for the tweets. Thank you for the DMs. We love hearing from you. And thank you, David, of Overthink Podcast. This was a great, great episode. We loved having you back. And we look forward to hearing more about your upcoming book. Okay, until next time. Bye. There we go. I'm going to go get my nails done now. Go get your nails done.